Hello and welcome to this special episode of Working It, where we'll be discussing the future of hybrid workplaces. It's one of the most popular and polarising topics that we cover in the FT. Our readers cannot get enough of the hybrid debate. And in fact, the response to two recent articles was so huge that we've decided to try out a new responsive format, Working It's Most Read. And we'll delve deeper into the work and careers topics that are sparking debate and unpack the responses from you, our readers and listeners. I'm joined today by Camilla Cavendish and Polita Clark. They're both FT columnists and they've both written recently on the future of hybrid work in 2022 and beyond. Polita and Camilla, hello. Hello. Hi, Isabel. So I'm going to start with you. Polita, why do you think hybrid work is such a hot topic? It's like third only to coffee and cycling in terms of the responses it gets. It is. It's incredibly polarising because I think that a large swathe of our readership, like the rest of the world, are desperately keen for hybrid working to work and want it to happen as soon as possible. And a very large swathe have exactly the opposite view and are just as desperate for it to go away and wish it had never, ever emerged in the first place. And so it's very difficult to marry those two and to get agreement on this. And because I think basically what's happened with hybrid working is it's opened up or or the whole pandemic has opened up this world of working from home that has solved one of the big problems of work, which is that there was an assumption that we would work all these long hours hours and there would be someone at home all the time to look after children and general home life. And once we discovered what it was like to work from home when you didn't have that sort of pressure of being in the office, people really enjoyed it and I think they don't want to give it up. And so that's going to be a very hard circle to square. Camilla, what's your take on it? Is it a binary in a very uncertain world? Is that what the key to the attraction of it? I think it's partly because it's personal for all of us. So we're all grappling with it and everybody has a view. And it really does change depending on what kind of work you do, whether you need to be really focused and on your own or whether you need to be working in a team. It depends on the kind of sector you work in. And so actually, I think everybody in this debate can be right in a funny way because everybody starts from a different position. Right. And I think at this point, maybe we should talk about exactly what we mean by hybrid work two years into the pandemic, because it has changed. And I define it at the moment as working from more than one place during the working week. So that could be a home and an office, or it could be an office and a co-working space, because people are starting to go back to those now, or even a museum, a cafe, or there are some bosses who take their teams to Airbnbs in cool cities. Not anyone at the Financial Times, I hasten to add. (laughs) And we have to be, I think, probably quite clear that it's different from all remote or what some people call distributed work. Polita, can you talk a bit about what the difference between hybrid and all remote is? Because I think people get confused. Yeah, I think so. And of course, a lot of the research has been done on this already is really relating to remote work. And I think broadly speaking, that's when people are working full time at home. And before the pandemic, that was incredibly rare. It was something like 5% of working days were spent at home in the developed world anyway. And that's changed now. You know, it went up to sort of 40, 50% during the pandemic. And it's now looking as though it's going to be something like 25% or whatever. But anyway, so it was incredibly rare. It's very different to hybrid, which is actually probably more akin, I think, to in-office work because hybrid workers, as you say, you're sometimes at home or elsewhere and you're sometimes in the office and the way that it's kind of working out at the moment, you're going to be in the office for two to three days a week seems to be what a lot of companies are plumping for. 
And just to drill down into the articles we're talking about that have been huge hits, Polita, yours was published in December. It was our most read article of 2021 in the Work and Careers section. And we put the headline, if you thought hybrid working was hard, wait until 2022 as the headline. What was the point you were trying to make in that article? It felt to me as if there was a huge amount of discussion about hybrid working, but it hadn't really been allowed to start because every time a company went to introduce it, in many countries, you had another series of lockdowns happening. And so it was all this sort of stop-start, stop-start situation. And then as the end of the year neared, it looked as though we were finally going to get a chance to see what it was like in earnest when companies were able to really get stuck into it. And as I was talking to people and watching various panels, sometimes taking part in various panels on the future of work and where we're at with hybrid, it became obvious to me there was this sort of conventional wisdom really amongst what I would call the more progressive employers and managers who really thought that the pandemic had ripped the bandage away from this terrible draconian presenteeism that had basically been far too prevalent in many workplaces and had allowed this new mode of autonomy and worker flexibility to flourish and everybody just had to get on with it in hybrid. And that didn't seem to me to be being questioned very much until I saw this this one conference panel. It was an FT conference, actually, where the chief executive of an insurance company, Vitality Insurance, Neville Kupovitz, basically was surrounded by a number of people who were conforming to what I would call the conventional wisdom on this and said, well, actually, no, it's not quite like that. It's really quite difficult when you go to implement it. It works for some jobs, as Camilla was just saying. You know, it's fine for some jobs, some roles. It's really not fine, for example, with customer service-facing roles. And so it just struck me that that discussion really did encapsulate what I think is going to be a much more divisive and polarising argument. We haven't even started with hybrid working because these companies haven't actually been able to have a good sort of strong, sustained go at it yet. And when they do, this sort of debate about worker autonomy is going to become much more prevalent, I think. Yeah, I think yours was perhaps one of the first articles that kind of cracked open that idea that we were seeing everywhere that, you know, it's a good thing, flexibility is always a good thing, you know, people are very wary of upsetting people. Which brings me on to Camilla's article, which had the headline, it's time to admit that hybrid is not working. I think it's the FT's most read article so far in this year, Mm. which shows how much people care about this. So what were you thinking? What prompted you to write that? So I had quite a similar experience, actually, to Polita. I give speeches on the future of work from time to time, and I was giving one, in fact, back in person a couple of months ago, and I was trotting out the same old statistics about productivity largely having improved while people were at home. And quite a few in my audience afterwards told me they weren't entirely convinced. And I went back and looked at the data. Because also I know that from my own experience, I am much more productive in the office. This is an unfashionable thing to say, but I am. Because the commute that we all hate, for me, puts a mental distance between my home and my work, which actually when I'm at home, I just find really, really difficult to shed. So I went back and looked at the data. And the data originally suggested that people were working longer hours and being more productive. That's partly because it was based on looking at when people logged on and when they logged off, not knowing much about what they were doing in between. The new data from all over the world suggests that in quite a few cases, we are working really hard, but 
people are doing a hell of a lot more meetings. And that's partly because hybrid working requires a huge amount of coordination, which companies are still figuring out how to do. And a number of studies suggest that actually output is not so great. And this chimed with me because I'd also been writing about customer service and the fact that, you know, you can't get a driving license. HGV drivers that we're in great need of are still sitting in queues because the DVLA isn't actually issuing them. It's been really hard to get a passport. It's really hard to go to any call centre and talk to a utility company or a bank. And I'm thinking, well, hang on, how can this be so hard? Because all these people, all they have to do is just switch their technology to work from home. And then I started thinking about the third point, which is the great resignation that we're all writing about. A lot of us who worked remotely at the beginning of the pandemic, I think, were really effective because the people we were working with, we'd worked with for years. We had a shared set of values. We trusted them. We kind of knew where we were coming from. We are going into a different world where a lot of people are going to be changing jobs. They're going to be joining organizations where they have not had the benefit of that face-to-face contact and all those kind of body language cues that do matter. And then I also started talking to people who said that that kind of social capital is the bit that's often missing from the debate. So that's what I wanted to question is really this assumption, as Polita was suggesting, that somehow it's all going to be completely fine and productivity will go up, even though we're having more meetings, we may not be getting anything done. So it's interesting that we're almost two years in and we're only now getting to this point where we're starting to make some counter arguments and maybe looking ahead. And the point you made about social capital, I think, is really interesting because... I've been very struck listening to the writer Narina Hertz talking about loneliness. She's really interesting on that subject. And it strikes me that there's been a lot written about, you know, people saving money by getting rid of their offices, but they're not taking into account the human capital, the fact that we need those offices to meet people if you're new, even if you're old. I mean, I'm delighted to see you both. It's a rare treat and I feel energised and excited. Yes. Um, and Polita, are you starting to see more people talking about the importance of human ties after two years? I mean, it's been all along, but it seems suddenly, it's almost like we didn't notice that before the pandemic. Yeah, I think we're all noticing that. And I think to some extent we were noticing it in year one, really, of the pandemic, that those ties are incredibly important. And actually, just interesting, just going back to the research, that Camilla was just talking about, because I think what the early research that was done on remote working showed, not hybrid working, because there really hasn't been any large-scale randomised controlled studies, which are the ones that, you know, really do narrow down causality. So we don't really know what the impact is, although there are some academics doing very large ones in the US at the moment. um, And it's it's interesting, you know, that we should see in a couple of months. And Isabel, we must talk about that for (laughs) next working careers feature. But anyway, what the early ones did show was that actually when it comes to remote working, people are more productive when they're at home. Very often, if you do a randomised controls test, so in other words, you take a group of people, some working at home, some staying in the office, and they're doing exactly the same job. And a lot of the studies that we've seen come out over the last year or so have been not randomised controlled trials. So we don't actually quite yet know yet, I don't think. But one thing they show is that with the people at home who are more productive are are in fact lifting their performance because they're not distracted and they are able to get onto work and do more work because they have been missing those ties and those social connections, which personally I value enormously and I get very tired of myself sitting by myself at my (laughs) desk day after day after day and I've been really enjoying coming back into the office when I've been able to and I think that we may all be much more productive at home but we are missing out on a huge amount as well. And just looking ahead, if we can 
cast our thoughts forward. Camilla, what do you think will be the lasting changes? Can we say anything certain about, you know, a lot, a lot of companies seem to be moving to what's this terrible acronym TWAT, <laughs> Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday God. in the office. I think you have to be British to find that to absolutely find that. terrible. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, clearly a lot of bosses are finding this very difficult. And the truth is they're not actually speaking out. And a lot of the people who've written to me are people who are running not necessarily the very biggest organisations, because I think those organisations quite often feel that they are managing flexibility and it is good for their staff. But quite a lot of small business owners, quite a lot of middle ranking size companies have written to me saying, thank God someone is saying this is really difficult. I can't broach these issues with my staff. And I think the phrase well-being, which we were just talking about, is going to become central. What do we actually mean by it? So I used in my article a genuine example of a friend of mine who's a senior employee who called a junior employee to try and schedule a meeting. Now, she actually wanted to offer him a promotion. He didn't know this. He told the diary secretary he couldn't possibly make it because it clashed with his yoga session. This was at 10.30 in the morning on a Thursday. Now, he didn't get the promotion. But the number of people I've had writing to me saying that he was right, that he was right not to cancel the yoga session because his well-being was more important, makes me understand why so many of those bosses are really, really treading on eggshells when they don't know how to broach this with their staff. In New York, uh, New York Times and Hearst magazine are being sued by their staff because they've asked people to come back in two days a week. And so I think there is a really big question to come about what do we mean by well-being? Because... I agree with where both of you are going in this conversation that I personally think mental health does require interacting with other people. And some of us don't necessarily realise how bad it's been for us to be on our own. That's not true of everybody. And, and this is so difficult because this is all so individual and personal. But I do worry. I worry about new hires going into organisations where they don't get what we all got, which is learning from how other people behave and the routines they set. And I worry about the mental health of people who are saving money on the commute, who are able to spend more time with their children, but are not getting that sort of camaraderie that, again, as you said, please, you can't kind of necessarily bottle it in a ratio of output, but I think it's probably really good for us and we may miss that if we don't get it. So it's not as stark as we all need to get back in the office every day, but there is a, a much bigger conversation that is not being had. I think what a lot of people who run organisations are worried about is that if everyone's coming in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday becomes the new Monday and Thursday becomes the new Friday, and actually, how do they know what people are doing? Now, you can say that everyone's far too suspicious, but we all know what it's like to suddenly get to Friday afternoon and kind of take a sigh of relief. I think I'd rather have someone telling me that I really, you know, needed to come in on a Friday. <laughs> it might be better for me in terms of my own productivity. What do you think about this, Polita? I mean, we all, I think, probably approach this from our own backgrounds. And Although I've spent a lot of time working in offices, I've also spent a lot of time as a foreign correspondent working at home or just not being in any sort of office. And I kind of tend to agree. Actually, a colleague of ours, Rana Faruha, wrote about this in a piece this week where she was saying that the number one concern of CEOs at the moment, according to this new conference board survey, was that the labour shortage and their response to that was to offer more flexible working. And she was pleased with this because she had always felt much more productive working from home because she felt she was a productive sort of person and there were fewer distractions, etc. So it made sense. In fact, she had also thought 
that one of the quickest ways of finding out which of your workers were really productive and which weren't was to send them all home and judge them on their output. <laughs> and you would, and I think actually there's some truth to that because the great thing about being in the office is that you are present, you are being seen. And some of the studies that were done some years ago on remote working showed that the great problem with remote working is that you're about half as likely to be promoted as if you were in the office. And so that's why a lot of productive people weren't that keen on working from home. So that's what sort of has skewed the findings in some research on remote working productivity. But I, I tend to sort of agree with Rana in a sense, because I think to me, if you are the sort of person that really does perform relatively well. I'm not saying I'm the most productive person in the world, but I think I'm probably not the least. And I I think that when you're at home and you're not actually being judged on the fact that you're visible in an office, actually it probably isn't a bad way of figuring out who's doing what. It's just that we're not used to measuring that sort of output. And I keep going back to a column I did actually in the first year of the pandemic when I spoke to the head of what until the pandemic had been the world's biggest remote working group, this GitLab group, and they had something like 1,500 workers who'd never been in an office. They don't even have an office. And this Sid Sabrangi, the head of GitLab, was saying he thought that most companies would fail at hybrid because it required so much more management. Yeah, it does. And that's the big problem, that managers understandably don't want to commit and devote as much time is going to be required to make this thing work. And I understand that completely. And I think the onus is on senior people to come in. And what I'm worried about is we're seeing organisations where the senior people have the nicest home offices. They have nice houses probably outside the city. And in some cases, they really don't want to come in. Now, the model you're talking about, I agree, you need them to come in. And the flip side of that is if you're a leader of an organisation, you really need to keep tabs on what's going on. And you can't just ring up a junior employee and schedule a meeting with them because they'd freak out. You need to be able to bump into them in a corridor and say, oh, can we have a quick word? I mean, leaders of organisations, it's not just as simple as each individual person and their output. It is how the whole organisation works together. If you look at Ove Arab, the architectural and engineering firm, they quite early on in the pandemic said to their staff, no, we really need you to keep coming in where you can because they could do the bread and butter business remotely. But their real value add is the incredible innovation and the new ideas that they bring. And they felt very strongly, and I think we've seen that from other companies, that there's something there about the human interaction that they haven't been able to replicate through technology. So I do think it depends what sector you're in. But also, of course, we as journalists have a very easy way of measuring our output, right? I mean, either we write an article or we don't. Either it's read or it isn't. Most organisations, it's not such an easy metric. That's exactly right. And I think that companies are going to have to really try to figure out ways of, of measuring this or at least coming up with some sort of way of understanding where the problems are because inevitably there are going to be massive problems when you institute a new system like this. I mean, we'll undoubtedly find this at the FT if we ever manage to introduce it here, I think, Isabel. And in fact, one of the things we haven't talked about is how much tech has advanced. So, you know, I've read several places that office tech has advanced 10 years in the last two years. And I think perhaps not in the industries we're in, but for a lot of industries, things like Slack have become the primary communication channel, replacing office interaction. You know, they even have water cooler Fridays, don't they, where they they all drink their cocktails remotely. I mean, to us, that isn't particularly appealing. But, you know, for a different type of worker, that is the norm. And maybe they don't feel they're missing out on something. So I would say great use of tech. And also, we've talked a bit about management failings, but better communication. I think managers haven't quite shifted to a different way of, you know, much more explicit expectations of when you're available for work. 
And sometimes that tech will do that for you. It will mark when you're working or not working or away. But in industries or legacy companies where they haven't been used to doing that, I think that's the big shift that hasn't happened. Mm. That's really interesting, Isabel, because the other thing we've seen is that good managers have become much more engaged with their staff during the pandemic because they've had to. And they've had to reach out and really think about how do they communicate with people, how do they engage with them. And in fact, staff satisfaction has gone up in a lot of those organisations because they've suddenly, I mean, bizarrely, they're not in the same physical space, but they felt seen in a way that they haven't before. And so that's a big lesson, I think, for managers in, in whatever version of hybrid we get. From the people that you're talking to, Polita, how are managers reacting at this stage in the pandemic? Well, I think a lot of them are really struggling because they are having to deal with whether it's bringing in not necessarily an entirely new IT system, but quite a few bits and pieces of new technology that, okay, that might have been better done in the first or second year. But they are still grappling with having to make a whole lot of changes to the business and in many cases really struggling with the business that is not necessarily going as well as it might for all sorts of other pandemic-related reasons. And then on top of that to be told that they've got to bring in this new hybrid way of working that nobody really has a completely fail-proof understanding of and nobody can really, with the best will in the world, the best consultants in the world, really are not able to drill down, I think, at this early stage in proceedings and give you a kind of a one-size-fits-all solution to this. So people are making it up very much as they go along and it's just a big drain on what are often, you know, overworked, overstretched managers and I do feel a lot of sympathy for people in those sort of, in those positions. Right, because managers are quitting at high rates Mm. um, because they're burnt out because they are having to become therapists, particularly for younger members of the workforce, who expect that in a way that perhaps in a traditional workplace you wouldn't expect it. But yeah, that- that's right. And then I think also a lot of organisations have still kept up with the same working patterns, the same meeting patterns, and meetings are such a problem with hybrid working. You know, we always had a meeting for an hour on Mondays, and then we had another one uh, for two hours on Tuesdays, and we have, and people are just still sticking to this system, and that means that in a hybrid situation where you have to have a lot more coordination, you are literally having days where it is just meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. It's not a great way to live and work. Quit the meetings. I think that's one of the reasons why people are leaving their jobs because they've forgotten what they used to like about the job. Yeah. And quite a lot of the research that I've seen shows that meetings have got shorter, but there's just more of them. So as you say, it doesn't really, you know, you're going from one to the other. And then, of course, when you're in a Zoom meeting, you are stuck with that group of people. You don't have the serendipity of bumping into somebody who's outside the team. And I think the danger of groupthink in any organisation from that is a real problem. If you're a coder in a tech company, you can do it from anywhere. But if you're in any kind of business where you're trying to be creative and think outside the box, I think it's just very, very stultifying. And I'm not sure even with Slack we've got beyond that yet. Okay, so I'm going to go into the readers now. Amazing responses to both of your articles. And this is perhaps my favourite. It's a very short letter in response to Camilla's article from Jeremy Wagner, who lives in Suffolk in the UK. 
In her cautionary words about the benefits of working from home, Camilla Cavendish misses one important point. Four of our six children met their future partners in the workplace. Extending homeworking indefinitely might narrow the gene pool as well as making the workplace a lot less fun. <laughs> so we've sort of talked about friendship and loneliness at work, but love is another yeah, no, big funnily thing. Enough, it's really funny he wrote that letter because I had, in the same speech that I mentioned was making me think about this, I'd actually looked up beforehand how many people still meet their partner in the workplace because I think there's a concept that everything's now dating apps, you know, online. In fact, a large number of people still meet their partner, either in higher education or in the workplace. And you're quite right. Um, we potentially are just removing that from a generation which still needs it. And this one, I've noticed it's almost exclusively people who had brutal commutes pre-COVID who are most in favour of work from home. Perhaps the problem was the commute, not the fact that work took place in the office. You've written about that, Polita, haven't you? I am sure. In fact, I mean, the research bears this out, that you know, commuting was an incredibly big problem. And of course, more so during a pandemic. And people still now, understandably, are not keen on commuting if it's a long distance. But sure, I mean, yeah, in the US, in this country and elsewhere, the ability to have a day without spending an hour of it crushed up in the tube is a day to remember, one to look forward to. We'll get on our bikes. Mm. Okay, and this is the most recommended comment under Camilla's piece, which had, I think, about 850 likes. If, as a manager, you're struggling to motivate, engage with, or get your subordinates to produce work remotely, the problem is likely you. I suspect a lot of this wailing from management about lost productivity is just the gap in their ability to lead people without bullying or micromanaging. Oh, I love that. <laughs> So managers, look to yourselves. I think as previously discussed, though, that is a genuine challenge and it makes the life of managers even more difficult. Yeah, I think it's a very easy sort of criticism to make when you're not a manager. But <laughs> if you put yourself in the shoes of a manager, you know, it, this is not easy and it's not going to be easy. And this is a really heated debate. You know, there were 1,200 comments under your article, Camilla, and several hundred under yours, Polita. Camilla, did you receive quite abusive comments or emails. I mean, I struggle to understand why people get so het up, but how did you feel about it? Yeah, I was surprised how het up people got, actually. I mean, on both sides, but on the sort of negative side. And I was, I thought I'd been quite careful in the column, you know, not to criticise anybody who doesn't want to commute. I mean, I said in the column that presenteeism is a terrible thing. I think people take these things very personally. And I had a lot of letters from people who have long commutes saying that was simply unacceptable to them. But there's a hardening of language around this topic, I think. And there is definitely a change in viewpoint about the contract between employer and employee. And that we're all going to have to navigate. So to sum up, hybrid working in 2022, Polita, how's it going to go? What's your advice to listeners? Well, I think it's definitely here to stay. It's not going to go anywhere. The main reason is we have this quite intense labour shortage in many countries and there's no way that employers in many industries who are struggling to retain staff and hire new ones are going to alienate them more by saying that we're not going to be doing hybrid work and we want you back in the workplace as you were, thanks. We know that managers basically by a sort of two-to-one ratio are much more in favour of returning to that sort of workplace, but employees are definitely wanting to see a mix of hybrid work, of either hybrid working or in many cases, all remote working continue. So I think the genie's out of the bottle. Once you've introduced these policies, it's quite difficult to go back, particularly if you've allowed some staff to move houses, which many have. It's also going to be difficult once these policies start to come in and people are employed on the basis that you are a hybrid workplace. It's then difficult to just roll it back. So I had initially thought that they, people might 
test or trial hybrid and then perhaps go back once the pandemic eased. I've actually changed my view on that now and I'm not convinced it's going to happen. I think that's right. I don't think people have got time. They're having to make decisions right now. I've been chairing a charity for the last four years and our chief executive, who's fantastic, actually moved to Cumbria during the pandemic and you know, said he would still do two days in London. When it came to find a replacement for him because he left, my board was adamant that we should advertise a job which insisted on people being in London for at least three days because that's where we're based and that's where we have a lot of very young staff. And, and it was very interesting. They were completely uncompromising on this because they felt otherwise we would be letting down our staff. But the headhunters were warning us that this would reduce the pool of talent who would apply. So I think these issues are very, very live. I mean, the only thing I would say is... I think the contract is being rewritten between bosses and employees, but I think bosses have to be really quite careful in this war for talent what expectations they're setting because they may not be able to meet them. That's a fantastic point to end on. For me, the key takeaways are meetings are probably not necessary, so I'm going to go back and cancel lots of them in my diary. (laughs) And also to avoid groupthink. I think that's a fantastic point that I hadn't really thought about before, that we're all on the same old Zoom meetings all the time and we just are not bumping into people that we don't... The loose ties Mm. of the office have disappeared for many people. With many thanks to Camilla Cavendish and Polita Clark for appearing on this episode. And if you want to read the articles about hybrid work we've mentioned, I'll put links in the show notes. Please do get in touch with us. We want to know what topics you think are the most important or divisive in the workplace today. We're at workingit at ft.com or with me direct at Isabel Barrick on Twitter. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. Thanks to the producer Anna Sinfield and executive producer Joe Wheeler. We have editorial direction from the FT's Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. Thank you for listening.